looking at the life of Joseph, who goes essentially from a little boy and his family to prison pits, to uh, accused of crimes he didn't do, to becoming prime minister in the greatest nation of the world at that time, straight out of prison. I want to take you back um, to a time before I was married, to a time before I had children. I want to rewind a little bit more to even before the proposal and the grand gestures of love. I want to take you before I even asked my wife, now my girlfriend then, to even be my girlfriend. I want to take you to the meet queue, the moment where we first met. And I actually want to rewind a little bit before that because the story, the romantic story that you've all come to know and love, that, that, uh, hates, that puts Romeo and Juliet to shame, Gabe and Fiona, I know, I know. That story began in this very venue. And, uh, and I remember I got a phone call from a friend up in, in Stellenbosch. She said, my friend Fiona is moving to your area. She's looking for a church. Can, you, can I send you a number? And I said, I am single. I'm also a pastor. You say she's a single. I'm, I would love to minister to her. You know, there's a love. <laughs> Send me her number. That's my gifting, you know. And, um, and I remember texting her back and forth, uh, not knowing that she would become one day my, my future wife. But uh, innocently, this back and forth, and she said, I'd love to go to a life group before Sunday. And I said, sure. And I sent her to some free, good friends of ours, to their home group, their life group. And she went to it. And these friends, after that evening, they phoned me and said, Gabe, what an incredible lady you sent us. I said, I know. I'm such a godly guy. I just knew that she would fit right in there and be a blessing. And then they followed up with, Gabe, have you met her? And I had to be honest and say, no, I haven't met her. But then they said the words that you, if you say to a single person who's looking, they'll just elicit a lot of excitement. They said to me, Gabe, we think you should meet her. And I was like, whoa. And all of a sudden, that, that name and number on my phone became a Facebook profile picture that I was looking and I was per perusing, right-click, save as, right-click, save as. And it's not weird. We got married, so I'm not a stalker. <laughs> Don't judge me. You've all been there. I know you. And, uh, and, and I remember as I started to look at this girl, I was like, she is so beautiful. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then I started to look at her, and then I looked in the mirror, and I was like, oh, I don't stand a chance. Uh, and, and, and this is before I started working out, so you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and, but I remember going to a friend of mine. I said, listen, I, this girl, look at her. And I just know that as there's going to be a queue of guys. This, she's not going to be single for long. I think I've, I've got a small window. What should I do? What should I do? And, and, I, and must I bide my time? Must I play it cool? Must I keep my calm? What do I need to do? And he gave me this advice. He said, look. He said, Gabe, look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? And let me be honest. That wasn't his words. That was, he was quoting Eminem. Um, but I need to be honest, my palms were sweaty, my knees were weak, and my arms grew heavy. I want to tell you, he said this, I'll paraphrase what he said. He said, Gabe, I think you've got a small window of opportunity. He said, Gabe, take a shot. Take a shot. Just go for it. Take a shot. And I want to tell you, as they say in the classics, the rest was history. But today, I want to preach a message entitled, Take a Shot. Because I want to encourage us, life changes church in this season as Christ follows, to take a shot. Take a shot at greatness. Take a shot at breaking through the status quo. Take a shot at that breakthrough that you've longed for. Take a shot at being used by God. Take a shot at getting your family back. Take a shot at getting the free of that addiction finally. Take a shot at your future. Take a shot. But 
maybe you're here tonight, today and you, you want to answer back to me rhetorically. You would say, take a shot, but Gabe, it feels like I've got no more bullets left in my chamber. Uh, it feels like uh, a younger me, a more naive me, this message would have been for me, ready to go. But I, I've seen a bit of life and it feels like the years have taken its toll. I feel like I'm in a dead-end job. I feel like um, my back is against the wall. I feel maybe it looks like I'm actually looking down the barrel myself. How do I take a shot? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I believe this sermon is just for you. I want us to remind us today of how we can have power when we don't have any power. Take a shot. So to help us do this, we want to read Scripture. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1 through to 22. It says this, Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and the chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches and began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such a positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. In my dream, there were three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. The top basket contained all kinds of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. This is what the dream means, Joseph told him. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. Then birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position, so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Let's pray. I want to pray a, a deep, elaborate prayer. So get yourself ready. Speak, Lord. We are listening. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them the title of my sermon. Tell them, take a shot. Tell them that. Come on, in the balcony as well, say, take a shot. Tell them that. And I really believe that the spirit of, that the test me is the spirit of prophecy. So if you are single and they are single, why don't you say, take my number. Come on. I bless it in Jesus' name. Right there. Miracles breaking out. Take a shot. How to have power when you have no power. Firstly, from this text, I want to take us to the first understanding. I want to call us, take a shot at serving. 
Take a shot at serving. You, find, you see, we find when we open this text, Joseph is in a prison in a foreign nation for a crime he did not commit. And scholars will tell us he's been there for over a decade. This is not just a short little stint in prison. He's been there for a long time, for the, for the majorities of his 20s. This is a man who could have been sitting there going all the wasted years. He's a million miles away from home in a foreign land that does not worship his God, that does not know any of his history. He's been falsely accused. He's done everything he needs to do up to this point. He's been thrown in prison, and it feels like all everything, he's got nothing left to give. And when we find him, we don't find him sulking in the corner, going, how unfair. This is not right. I'm out. Can't do another day. Neither do we find him shouting and protesting, going, hey, who's going to hear my story? They need to get this on the, the front page of the, the, the Daily Herald. We need to get this out there. Injustice. Justice for Joseph. No, we don't find him sulking or shouting. We find him serving. Serving. Serving in a place that seemed unlikely. And this is actually not just a thing for Joseph. This is the very modus operandi of the kingdom of God. You see, when we come to Jesus, we find Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. He's, he's this incredible narrative. And this is what he says. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Jesus has just got ears, he's listening, and they are so, they're so embarrassed because they're all like jostling for who will be next to Jesus, who's the best out of us guys, and, and like trying to see who's the strongest, who's the best, who's the, most, who's the most charismatic, trying to get in line. And Jesus says this, and he sits them down, he says, he sat them down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. He goes on in Mark chapter 10 that they don't seem to get the lesson because James and John come to Jesus when the other 10 aren't listening and say, hey, Jesus, I know you had a great teaching the other day on that serving thing. Wonderful. But James and John are, we are good guys. Those are the 10, dodgy. Can we sit on your left and your right when you come into your kingdom? Just asking for a friend. And that friend is us. And Jesus then goes on a, a discourse with them explaining the narrative of how the kingdom works, but he gets to the, the essence of it in, in verse 42. He says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man... Jesus, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so radical, because when we go back to our Joseph narrative, we find Joseph in this moment, a, a guy a million miles away from chapter 37 of his narrative when he was a young teenager, and he himself had received a dream from God, an elaborate promise of how God was going to use him, the, the layout, the blueprint of his life ahead. But now with every single page we turn in the Bible, every unfolding year, it feels like he's going further and further and further away from that reality. He's now in the prison, a million miles away from that promise seemingly ever coming to fruition. He's run out of bullets. There's no more shots for him left to take. But this is the incredible reality. Joseph in that moment could have kicked out. But what happens is two guys come to him in the prison and say, Joseph, we had dreams. Can you help us? If I'm honest, what I'm doing in that moment is saying, dreams, stuff your dreams. Let me tell you a narrative about my dream. It's long gone in tatters. I'm helping nobody with this stuff. But this is the reality. What's different about Joseph is Joseph then stands in this moment. He starts to fight for other people's dreams. 
And that's the essence of when we serve, we're actually saying, actually, it's not about me, it's about other people's dreams. And that's the very essence that I'm here to tell you. Maybe uh, some people will like to pay preachers a lot of money to come and tell them, you are amazing, you can do it, it's all about you. Let me tell you, this preacher is doing the complete opposite. I'm doing something biblical. It's not about you. It's not about you. Be free. Amen. That's the sermon. Thanks for coming. No, it's not about you. We make this thing all about us. We get sold lies in the narrative. Live your dream. Come on, God is so into your dream. Come on, dream it. Think it out what you can think of how God will use you. When actually this is the narrative. Jeremiah 29, 11. All love that verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you a future. Oh, yes, amen. I receive it. Let me read it to you better. God speaking says, I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> they're good plans, but they're my plans for you. Not your dreams coming true. He's not there to feather your dream along. He's saying, I've got a dream. Much bigger, much greater than you could ever manufacture. Do you trust me? And will you, in this journey, will you fight for others? You see, when we come to the man named Jesus, Jesus, in the narrative book of John, he starts to tell this incredible reality. He says, the Father has placed everything into my hands. How huge is that? The Father has placed everything into Jesus' hands. The very next thing we see is Jesus with everything placed in his hands. Does he reach for kingdoms? Does he reach for dominion? Does he reach for title or authority? No. We read in John chapter 12, he says, The Father has placed everything into my hands, and with those hands I'll reach for my disciples' feet to wash them. This is so radical. So countercultural. This is the very reality for us that actually this is the sign of kingdom power. Power is serving those who don't deserve it. This is the place of anointing. If you want the anointing, it's to serve those who don't deserve it. This is radical for us because I want to say to you, if you want a good marriage, here's the key to a good marriage. Serve your spouse, even when they don't deserve it. Serve them, serve them, serve your church even when it doesn't deserve it. Serve your business, serve your school, serve the place you find yourself in because this is the way of power according to the Bible because actually it's not for what you can get out of it, it's but what you can get for them. You see, I'm guilty of this as well. I've prayed this prayer a lot of times. God, use me! And then a month later I go, oh, I feel so used. I need a break. I need a break. I need a kick out. I need some me time because sure, I just feel used. We say, God, I want to be a bridge for your kingdom. I just feel like people walking all over me, you know? I just, uh... You see, we love this bait and switch reality, but this is, the reality. this is the nature of the kingdom of God, this nature of Jesus himself. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that he poured himself out. He literally poured himself out. He emptied himself. He poured himself out into the very dregs. As a servant, poured him. Jesus poured himself out. Not going, but I need a little leftover for me. No, he poured himself out. He says, you do likewise. But what if you say the question, you say, but, but what, what will I have left for me? Well, here's the thing today. Take a shot. Take a shot of greatness. See what happens. Secondly, not just serving. Secondly, is humility. Humility. Take a shot of humility. Joseph, confronted by these dreams, he says to him, interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. I love this humble confidence. A man who had lost his, his, the clothes of promise, but he's never let go of the call. The outfit may have changed, but the call is not. The call of God still resounds in his heart. You see, this is what I want to remind us. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2 tells us what God is looking for. 
Let me tell you, God is not looking for big bank balances that he, oh, I can use for the kingdom. He's not looking for big social media presences. He's not looking for earthly forms of power. The Bible in Isaiah 66 says clearly, the Lord seeks for those of humble, contrite hearts and those who tremble at my word. Those who have humble, contrite hearts and who tremble at my word. And I really believe that actually this is the reality for you and I, that the key to humility is not about us going on a trip to try and think of ourselves less. It's about us thinking of him more. And I think the key is in the last part where he says, those who tremble at my word. Something that's been lost in the church worldwide. That actually we are called to tremble, shake before. We're called to come underneath the word of God. We're called to submit to it, to drop our opinions and say what your word says I will do. And that breeds humility into our hearts. You see, this is the reality for us. I think too often we are trembling at what man thinks of us. We're not trembling at the word of God in our lives. You see, I, when, I, when I'd be married for a year, I thought I'd put in a great year's work of marriage. I thought that uh, at Christmas time, I was definitely going to get a coffee cup saying, world's best husband. I thought, I'm up for it. Um, I'm such a good guy. And I was walking with Fiona, and we're walking side by side, and I, and I was... I started, I wanted to set her up to give me a compliment. I don't know if anyone's as, as unspiritual as me, but I like to sometimes you know, look for the compliment. And I said, I was like, I, I was shrouded in super spirituality. So I'll ask her, what's the one thing do you think that will stop me walking into the fullness that God has for me? Good, quick, because I'm thinking, I know she's, oh, I'm expecting, I'll say that. And then she'll go, Gabe, you are God's man for the hour. God has anointed you. You are chosen to the nations. You will speak and kingdoms will fall down. Nations will be built up. You are, honestly, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they're nothing compared to what God has placed on your life. I was like, I was like, love, you shouldn't have said that. That's what I was expecting. At the very least, I wanted her to say, can I think about it for a while? That would have been at the least. But this is what happens with my wife. I say, love, what's the one thing that will stop me walking into the fullness that God has for me? Without breaking stride, without her even looking left or right, without me even finishing the sentence, she says, fear of man, you're a man pleaser. I said, get behind me, Satan. I was flummoxed. But then I realized, because this is the reality, that I realized that I was addicted to man thinking well of me. And I shaped it into this false sense of humility, this false thing that actually I'm humble, but actually I cared more what you thought about me, what people thought, than what actually God said. I was trembling before what man said, not trembling before the word of God. And this is the reality. The problem is that's the way we teach people to read scripture. And it's bad. And I apologize. We often will say, when you read the Bible, open up, read a scripture, and ask this question. What does it mean to you? Bad. Bad hermeneutics, because actually the Bible, the place to start with the Bible is not asking what does it mean to you personally. It's actually start, what does it mean universally? What is God saying? It's not my interpretation that matters about the Bible. It's what God means about it. Actually, Scripture must bend. We, we must bend to Scripture. The Scripture doesn't bend to us. And this is the reality I need us to understand this moment, because in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And our journey, let me tell you, our journey in life is to so come under the word of God in the areas of our pride and our arrogance and our, where we think we have all the answers, but so come under the word of God that actually the, the flesh starts to become the word. That our areas of weakness start to become the word of God. That we actually start to imbibe the scriptures, chew and meditate on them so we, the flesh becomes the word. Uh, sorry, maybe you lost you guys. Anyway, keep going. James 4 verse 6 says this, God 
opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What a scary scripture. God actually is against. He is, he is violently against the pride in our hearts. He's against it. And the reason why I say it is because actually God doesn't need our platforms. He's not looking for platforms. As if, you know, we pray the prayer. God, if that one, that one celebrity became a Christian, then we would be able to get the message out. Oh, God, please may Justin Bieber and Kanye become saved. Then we'll... Too soon, sorry, too soon. God is not looking for our platforms or our pedigrees. Actually, so often Jesus, all the way through Scripture, kept on, when they tried to make him king, he said, no, I don't need your platforms. I don't need your man-made. I'll step off the stage again and again because I'm taking my journeys to go lower. The enemy came to exalt himself. Luke 4, the enemy says, take the kingdom, take the kingdom, take the kingdom. Jesus says, no, 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 because my way is different. The way to true power, to true greatness is not elevating yourself. It's going lower. This is the reality, the very nature of the kingdom of God. And this is why I love is that this is the good news for us is God loves using no name brands. So quit trying to make a name for yourself. God loves using no-name brands. It should free you. You're having to think, what do people think of me? What am I, how am I being uh, perceived? What is my social media presence? Can I tell you, it means naught in the kingdom of God. Be free. Humility is the way. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. It says, humble yourself. Humility will come either through your ability to humble yourself or God will humble you. It's far, far greater to humble yourself. The Bible says, humble yourself under his mighty hand and he will lift you up. In due time, the kairos time, in the appointed time, not in our impatient timeline. Maybe you say, but I've prayed the same prayers for years. I've been in the same job for years. I haven't seen anything change. If you keep humbling yourself under his mighty hand, he will lift you up. A little girl, Olivia, on the monkey bars, she doesn't have the upper body strength of her dad yet. It'll probably come when she turns six, but anyway, we'll get there. But on the monkey bars, it's so fun to see her. Uh, you know, she's straining to keep herself up and trying to get m- momentum to try and pull herself onto the next level. And it's this whole exhausting procedure. And it's actually an image of humanity, of how we're trying to all claw ourselves up the ladder and trying to keep it all together so we don't crash and burn. But as a, as a father, I come underneath her and I put my shoulders underneath her and I lift her up and the monkey bars go like in seconds. And I'm like, sign her up for the next Olympics. Look at her go. Because the Father came and lifted up. There's a difference when you're fighting for your, what, what's due me, I've got to fight and hustle. We actually take a shot of the kingdom way, humility. This is what the reality I want to tell you is that he's not looking for palaces, he's looking for mangers. The kingdom of God came when Jesus was birthed, not in the palace, not in a thing that had it all together, but in a manger. That's how the kingdom works. But what if no one sees me? If no one gives me the credit? Take a shot at humility. Take a shot. See what happens. Thirdly, serving humility. Thirdly is obedience. I love this reality. Joseph stepped into this realm up to this moment. Just natural life suddenly kicked into a supernatural gear. The dreams were shared with him, and all of a sudden he is unfolding dream interpretation before them, and they take pla- they actually what, what says happens takes place. Let me remind us in this moment that I believe obedience is the realm of the supernatural. Let me say that again. Obedience is the realm of the supernatural. It's us saying yes to God when our flesh screams no. 
And I love this reality. It's just, it's this reality of Jesus. Jesus seemed to be in the business of shrinking the crowd. I read Jesus. I studied marketing and I'm like, Jesus, from my first reading of you, you were a terrible marketer from my lens. Because every time he got a crowd around him, it seemed like he was doing his best to offend him. If you do not deny yourself, you cannot follow me. Oh, not a very popular one, Jesus. Tone it down, buddy. Oh, it's almost Christmas. He says, I don't want you to say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say. If you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you can have no part of me. He says this, if you do not bear your cross, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. That is so radical. That actually, let me tell you, radical obedience is the only obedience. The Bible says there's not two categories, not like first-class Christians who are really radically obedient, and then there's economy class for the rest of you. You know, you, like once you attend church every now and again, no, I don't do that stuff, but you know, I sin a little bit. No, this is what the Bible says. If you do not bear your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus said that. I can imagine the disciples going, oh my goodness, Jesus. We're trying to build a re revolution here. A crowd came and gathered around, and, and, and it's almost like Jesus' sermon title was, Are you sure you want to follow me? That's his title. He was trying to almost like, Are you really sure? Because one guy says, I'll follow you anyway. He goes, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically, follow me, you might be homeless. Oh, wow. Point one. Point two, he says, Yeah, point two, uh, can I go? I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my dad. Legitimate. Jesus says, Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Point three of the sermon, Jesus gets up and says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. I can just imagine the disciples, oh, he's going full twilight. <laughs> and the Bible tells us that the crowd left. And the disciples didn't even understand. He said, this is, where else can we go? It's like, Jesus, what are you doing? But actually, when you realize this is the reality, for me, I really believe Jesus was never looking for size. He was never looking for superiority. He was never looking for our seeming strength. He looks for obedience. He looks for obedience, and this is what the anointing is. God is saying, can I trust them to be obedient in this because I've got a whole lot more for them? Can I trust you in this moment to be obedient completely because I've got a future for you? I tell this narrative a lot, but when I was uh, in my teenage years, I was ravaged with a pornography addiction and a desire to follow Jesus. And I didn't know which one was going to win out. The desire for, for the things of the flesh or the desire for, for, for God's future for me. But I was in a meeting like this. And I remember got to, got to a head when I got to the moment where I felt the Lord say, radical futures demand radical obedience. And I was sitting in a meeting this side at the back of the church. And I'm sitting there and the whole meeting's going and I'm getting more and more uncomfortable. And I'm just like, I just can feel that I'm like, God's going, are you in or out? Are you in or out? Take a shot, take a shot. So I'm like, oh, what will people think? What about this? What about that? And I, before I knew it, I got out of my seat. I'm walking to the front in the middle during the service. I go up to the pastor and says, can I say something? And for some reason, he gives me the mic. Now I get up on the stage and I'm like, oh my goodness. I see mom and dad smiling me in the front row going. I'm like, why didn't they come to the evening service? I look on the right, I see all the pretty girls and I'm like, I will never get a girlfriend in this church. And it was true, I never did. But I got in that moment and I remember all the voices of man and the flesh crying out, back away, back away. And then in, in through tears, I confess, I said, this is where I'm at, but I'm done. I'm choosing, I'm choosing radical obedience. And let me tell you, can I, uh, that moment was cataclysmic in my faith. 
And let me, I really am so convinced that I would not be here today. I would be not married to the woman I'm married to. I wouldn't be pastoring in this church, in this city, if it wasn't for that moment. And I want to say and suggest that I think we sometimes sit on moments that we let pass by when God says, take a shot at obedience. Take a shot at obedience. See, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, a time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known. The context is God saying, Jesus saying, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. But if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my father. Let me tell you, everything that is secret and hidden, whether it is in the best sense of the word, your humility, your serving, your obedience that nobody else knows about, God says it will be revealed and rewarded. But conversely, everything that's done in secret, hidden, image management, trying to keep it together because I don't want anyone else to know, it will be revealed. This is the scripture. Maybe you say, but what, what will people think of me? Take a shot. Take a shot at obedience. Fourthly and finally, is total truth. I, I love this narrative because the one guy comes, gets a favorable uh, interpretation of his dream. The, the baker comes and goes, oh, me too, do me too, do me too. Here's my dream. Tell me about my future. And if I'm Joseph there, I, I'm like, oh, I would have fudged the numbers a bit. I mean, what harm is it to, I don't want to tell the guy the whole thing. You know, he goes whole hog saying, you're going to be impaled by Pharaoh. And then he goes, birds will come and eat your eyes out. I'm like, oh, Joe, come on, bro. That's way too hectic. Just be, just soften it. Just like, well, I don't know how well it's going to turn out for you. Good luck. Like, why would you go all in like that? But, but there's something different about this man, Joseph, because there's an all-in reality. There's a costly reality. Psalm 119 calls it integrity. Total truth, integrity. And the Bible says, blessed are those of integrity. And I think we've become addicted. We've been so fashioned by environment that we've become Instagram story people. Just the highlights. Take seven photos of ourselves. Choose the best one. Discard all the ones that just, we've got a bit of a squonky eye and this thing and the glare's in the wrong place. And then we put all the filters on. And then we've got the app that even takes away the wrinkles and the other lines. And it gets you such an extreme that I've seen some of your profile pictures. And I've seen some of you in person. And it's not the same person. That's just an aside. But I think that's what we do. We think we're pretend. We think, who are we fooling? We, ha- we are fooling nobody because God knows who we are. And then t- he says, I, can't, I cannot bless who you're pretending to be. This is the reality for you and I that actually, I think the kicker for us in total truth, integrity, it's not a new way of life. It starts with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. It's not preached in churches often these days. But it's in the Bible, a huge narrative. In Philippians 2, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those words, some people go, fear and trembling. Um, It doesn't really mean fear and trembling. It's more reverence and awe. Nice try. Because the Greek words for fear and trembling in that location are phobos and tremos. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to know that phobos and tremos means fear and trembling. (laughs) Fear and trembling. He is God. He is God. He is God Almighty. And this is the reality. Are you, do you fear being found out or do you fear the Lord? There's a story that, uh, that, uh, that does the rounds of this, uh, this preacher, this prosperity preacher in America in the 90s. And he had hit the heights of his acclaim and fame, preaching this, this gospel on, on Sundays and seeing uh, 
seemingly great results and the anointing flow and people meeting Jesus. But on the other side, while this was happening, he had his hands in the proverbial till and he was siphoning all funds from the ministry into his private account. He went to jail for that. And in jail, people came and interviewed him and they said, listen, pastor, when did you stop loving Jesus? And he said, loving Jesus? Oh, loving Jesus, never. Fearing him a long time ago. And I'm concerned that a lot of the church say they love Jesus, but they don't fear Jesus and doesn't translate to total truth. Let me tell you today, as we come into land, take a shot at serving. If you want to be great, serve. Take a shot at humility. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. Take a shot at obedience. If you want a future, radically obey. Take a shot at total truth. If you want God's heart, fear the Lord. When you have no power, this is how you get power. When you've got no bullets in your chamber and you arrive at that marriage, you arrive at that Monday morning meeting, you arrive at that dead-end job, you arrive back at that computer tomorrow and you're back into that schoolroom, room, but in the same environment, say, how do what I do here in this environment? Take a shot. Let's have a look at it. It's serving, humility, obedience, total truth. Take a shot. Those are the bullets in your chamber. It's the way of the kingdom to power, greatness, authority, anointing, future. Let me tell you why I've got such confidence because this is the way of Jesus. In the book of Philippians, this is how we describe how Jesus operated. Philippians chapter two, verse six says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took a shot and this is what happened with Jesus in verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Take a shot. Let me tell you, this is how it starts though. It says he emptied himself. He poured himself out, took on the nature of a servant, humbling himself to be obedient to the point of death on the cross. He poured himself out. Let me tell you right now, you say, what do I do, Gabe? Let me tell you, pour yourself out for Jesus. Pour yourself. Maybe say, they don't deserve it. The business, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Pour yourself out to Jesus. Serve him. Humble yourself. Be obedient to him. Total truth. And as you pour yourself out, let me tell you, take a shot at that and watch the mighty hand of God work. Take a shot because when you pour yourself out upon Jesus, when you pour yourself out, empty yourself out, you realize you now become a vessel that can be filled and the vessel can be used. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to take communion together right now. You see, the Bible tells us, it, well, every other religion tells us about nirvana, a mountaintop. Every other religion tells us about karma and if you get to the top and get to a certain level, the Bible tells us about Calvary. The greatest day of our faith was the day when our Savior died on the cross. It's a form of a servant in humility and obedience in complete truth. And this is what he says. This amazing reality for us is the story of Joseph is actually a story about Jesus. The story about Gabe Phillips is actually a story about Jesus because Joseph in the prison, while he's serving, humbling himself, being obedient, being totally truthful, we find the reality is that in the prison was a baker who worked with bread 
And next to him was a cupbearer who worked with wine in the very prison was the bread and the wine. In the very prison around him was the gospel of Jesus Christ at work. So much so that Jesus, we told that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he hung between two criminals, rightfully accused. And one criminal got sent to paradise and the other died and was accused. Just like the cupbearer, just like the baker. And just like Jesus, Joseph was raised to prominence and was a seat at the right hand of Pharaoh. Just like Joseph, Jesus was raised on the third day to life and was seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power and dominion in His hands. The story is not just about us, it's about Jesus. So I tell you today, it's not to take a shot on you or take a shot on your abilities. Take a shot on Him. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to take your next step or find out what is happening in the life of the church, head over to our website or follow us on social media. Cheers.